Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to episode two of uh, Tom Green's Van Life. I'm Tom Green, and, uh, you know, this is the podcast, uh, but it's uh, evolving. We're rebranding it, I guess you could say. I just want to basically have the name of the show reflect what's going on a little more, because I am broadcasting from my van as I'm traveling around uh, the United States, currently the southwestern United States, although as it warms up, uh, I might head north to Canada, you know? I am Canadian, after all, and American. Uh, but I, uh, I am a very excited, very excited to, uh, to bring you this podcast. Uh, I've built this studio, which you'll notice so- sounds pretty good, right? The quality of the sound is pretty good, uh, because uh, I've really built a state-of-the-art studio in here. Uh, I'm making music. Uh, you may have heard the opening theme song. That uh, video has just launched on my YouTube channel, and it's getting a lot of great response. People seem to like it. Uh, and uh, I appreciate you, uh, you uh, listening and sharing it uh, with your friends. Uh, my good friends uh, uh, from Slow Pineapple, Rob and Tyler. Rob Higgins, of course, uh, did the mixing and, and um, uh, the bass guitar and some of the keyboards and the drums. And uh, it's, it's really a lot of fun uh, making music out here in the desert, in the van, um, today, uh, I, I just want to jump right into the show real quick because I am really excited about Brent Underwood, who is our guest today, because he's doing something, I would say, so off the wall uh, that even for me, I am just amazed. And, you know, I, I, I decided to 
to, to get a van and go out and do some photography and music and podcasts as I travel around the country. But Brent has taken his pandemic adventure to a completely different level. Um, in, 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 in fact, what he's done is he bought a ghost town. He bought an actual entire ghost town. And uh, he's getting quite a lot of... Uh, uh, of, of buzz about this, I would say. I mean, he's really blown up on YouTube. He's got people from all over the world interviewing him because he bought a ghost town out near Death Valley in the Inyo Mountains in California. And it's a Wild West ghost town that for a 100 years has been unoccupied. And there is uh, been, you know, there was gunfights there. There was murders there. It was a silver mine. Uh, and he has just bought all these structures and 400 acres of land around it and moved there and is living there and is restoring it. And he's also doing these incredibly dangerous uh, videos. Um, they are dangerous. I mean, I'm not even exaggerating. And we talk about this in the podcast today. He's exploring these abandoned silver mines, going deep down under the ground, possibly into unstable, you know, unregulated environments. And it really is really very interesting and offbeat and uh, risky, to be honest with you. So, Hey, Tom, how's it going? Wow, I'm doing good, man. Good to talk to you, the legend. I've been uh, following along with your adventures, but, uh, but it's nice to actually talk to you for the first time right now on the telephone here. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's Yeah, this is... Uh... This is super fun for me. You know, I, I grew up watching your show, so this is, this is a treat. I'm really excited to do this. Oh, that's cool. Now I've been watching your show, too. It's kind of like uh, you're pretty isolated out there, so it must be nice just to talk to a human being, I guess. It's, it's, it's very nice. I think my closest of neighbors are 10 or 12 miles away, so uh, any interaction is, is much needed these days, I guess. I bet, yeah. So I, I, I've set this up a little bit in the intro already, but I'd like to kind of start by just at the very basic beginnings of this for people that don't understand exactly what we're talking about here. You bought a ghost town. What does that mean? Correct. Yeah. Uh, in June 2018, I purchased the former mining town of Cerro Gordo, and this was a town that was established in 1865. And it used to be the largest producer of silver for the state of California. And I guess ghost town's an interesting term, right? It can mean a couple of things. I, I think ghost town can mean abandoned, which which this town has been since nineteen twenty. So for about a hundred years there was no real activity here. Or, you know, it can be in the paranormal stuff, which, you know, kinda of depends on who you ask, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think we kinda I mean, I'd already mm -hmm. seen your videos and been watching, but I think we kinda came on each other's radar a little bit more when I went and explored a ghost town recently in Texas. And then everybody said, hey, you know, all, all of my followers on social media were saying, hey, you know, you should talk to Brent. And, and we connected on social media. But your ghost town is a little different than the one I explored. You're, you're, it's right out in, is it in Death Valley or where is it? It's in the middle of, of, of uh, the Inyo Mountains in California. Yeah, it's, so that's what's interesting. Like when I, when I first saw it, I thought it was kind of this desert town, which is true, but it's like, it's high desert. We're up at 8,500 feet. And so like right now, for instance, there's a massive blizzard going on outside. So I apologize for any like uh, noise in the background, but it's, it's in between Death Valley National Park and Sequoia National Park. So about three hours from Los Angeles and three hours from Vegas, if that triangulates it at all. 
And so how did you find out about this place? Yeah, like, so before this, I was living in Austin, Texas, and uh, I had a backpacker hostel, you know, bunk beds and rooms where travelers would come and stay and meet each other. And, and that was in a historic building. The, the building there was built in 1893. And I loved it. You know, I, I, I grew up loving history and the thought of like combining, you know, history with this hospitality aspect was interesting. And so I was looking for a bigger project. The thing also was going well. Um, and then my buddy that lives in LA, I remember like three o'clock in the morning, he took a small local real estate blog. He was like, buy your own ghost town. And, you know, he's not as a joke. I think he would be like, haha after the text. And then I started reading it and it just, it came alive. You know, I think for a lot of people, the American West is this, romantic place, right? I remember growing up, my grandfather used to watch that show Gunsmoke, and it seemed like every day there was, you know, treasure to find, you know, problems to solve, and this and that. And so when I saw photos of the town, my my, my imagination is so wild. And the more I read about the history, I just fell in love with it. And so I, I remember uh, I called the real estate broker, and I was like, you know, I'm interested in this town. He kind of laughed. He's like, you know, get in line. It was a pretty popular listing, I guess. And then I wrote up a really long email about, you know, my passion for history, why I like this town, what I hope to do with it. Who owned it before? Yeah. So it was owned by a family that owned it for about 25 years. And their, their kind of hope and dream was to allow people to come up and stay in kind of a bed and breakfast type situation. And it was primarily the mom and dad in the situation. They, they passed. Um, and by the time they passed away, their, their children were grown, you know, they had lives of their own elsewhere. And so they sat on it for a while, but they were really looking for kind of the right person to take it over to, to continue on a similar vision to what their parents had. And so I know that they spent a lot of time debating and thinking about it. And, uh, I ended up meeting them before we closed. I came out and I met, um, the former owner and there was a caretaker here at the time. And, I met everybody and we walked the property and it just, I guess, felt right. You know, it was, it was, it was fun and it was cool. And they, uh, they decided to go with us. Okay. So I've got a million questions. There's so much to talk about here. I want to make sure that people listening understand that there's a lot of detail to this, a lot of things that you do out there that are really interesting. I just want to make sure I really paint the picture first for people who don't understand what's going on here. So when you went there for the first time, you, you've never been there before. You're thinking of buying this place. What, you flew to L.A. Yeah. and then you rented a car and you drove out there on these crazy dirt roads? And how did that happen? And what were you thinking as you're driving out to this place? Are you thinking, am I nuts? What am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> a little. Yeah, I flew to L.A. and I, I got out of the car and I drove out here. And I, I grew up in Florida, so I'm used to like flat land, you know, pretty... Florida like at like landscape and so driving out here it was just a beautiful drive you know you're going through the desert you go through Red Rock Canyon which is on the way out and then the final seven miles to get to the town uh is a dirt road that you go from 3,000 feet in elevation to 8,500 feet in elevation so it's this mountainous dirt road with cliffs you know a thousand feet off if you were to tumble off and I just remember being in awe and I, I I remember the road seeming long, but it just, the anticipation kept building. So it was like a windy road. I remember every turn, I was like, this is amazing. This is amazing. Where is it? And then finally, you come around the final turn, and the town kind of reveals itself to you. And it's just this tucked away piece of history way up in the mountains. And I was just, 
you know, my jaw was probably close to the ground and I was blown away. And I remember walking around just smiling ear to ear because it was just, it's a magical place. And I, I kind of fell under its enchantment probably, probably day one. Now you're there by yourself, totally alone. Correct. Yeah. For the past 11 months, I've been up here full time solo, just working on the place. So you're all alone there. And you're working on the place. You, you've sort of lear- are, you, are you learning how to repair this ghost town as you go? Or where do you get material to do it? Uh, is there any neighbors nearby? Do you, do you, you know, I'm asking you a lot of questions here, but speak to that. How do you, how do you deal with all the, the logistics of trying to repair and upkeep a ghost town all by yourself in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, the, the logistics are tough just because it's hard to get materials up the road. But luckily, so the town currently, let's say, has 20 buildings. And there used to be something around 400 buildings here. So there's a lot of extra material kind of lying around. But as far as, like, my skill set, I was not the, – the property is about 400 acres, so it's quite large. And the majority of the buildings are in the old town core. So they're all, let's say, three or 400 yards from each other. But on the back side of the property, maybe a half a mile away, there's a small – shack, so to speak. So to, to kind of test my skills and build my confidence, I started working on that one first. So I went back there and I figured, hey, if I mess this up, at least nobody could see it, you know? And so I... No, there's, there's nobody there anyway. There's no one there any, but exactly. anyway, right? So it, yeah. I guess it doesn't really matter <laughs> either way. <laughs> That's, true. That's true. And so I, I worked on that and then I came back in town and yeah, first it was this not a lot of renovation, more just cleaning. Because so when when the town got sold, they left everything. I'm talking like boots by the door, jackets in the closet, family photos on the wall. They just they, their mentality was that everything that was up here belonged to stay here. They didn't want to take anything off the mountain. And so a lot of the work in the initial months was just sorting through, you know, what should stay and what should go. Just because it's almost like overwhelming if you think about it in whole. So I would just go building by building. I would go room by room and you know, sort the stuff out that, Hey, let's keep this stuff. You know, this stuff should probably go. Um, and then after that was done, I slowly start when started meeting some people in town. So occasionally I would get locals that would come and help me out a little bit. And then as they saw that I was more of like a full-time resident out here, I wasn't, you know, just an in and out guy anymore. They started being really gracious with lending me even stuff like heavy machinery. You know, I've never operated back all my life, but now I feel like somewhat competent on it because somebody locally lent me one that I could do a little work with. That, that's been a lot of fun to learn. You really went for it. You, you've invested, obviously, it must be a significant amount of money. You don't have to tell me how much, but I, I think it's online. It says it's, it's over a million dollars and substantial amount yeah. of money. Is it $1.4 million to buy a ghost town and 400 acres in the middle of nowhere in the California? Yeah, it was it was my life savings and then convincing a lot of people to chip in and then even taking a hard money loan. So like not quite a loan shark, but I don't know if I don't pay him, I don't know how well my, my kneecaps will survive, but uh, yeah. it was a big bet. It was, it was that I felt confidently on. And I think when the pandemic hit, it's a project that can't be a back burner project. You know, I was trying to do it from afar while I was in Austin and it's really one of these things that requires a lot of time every single day. And so as I came up here, initially, I think 
the discomfort of being alone is there's like a hump, right? So I think for the first week, I was used to my creature comforts in Austin. So up here, there's things like there's no running water. Uh, I'm seven miles or no, I'm way more than that. I'm like an hour from the closest store, you know, seven miles just to get up the hill. And so all these uh, difficulties make themselves very aware in the first week. And then something happened where I didn't really have a choice. So about a week after I moved up here, we got a huge snowstorm, like a blizzard on blizzards. And our road isn't paved if uh, a snowstorm happens. And so I ended up being stuck. So I got stuck for maybe six weeks up here um, alone without the option of leaving outside of walking down the road. And so during that time, I just became more comfortable with the realities of living up here. And I think I just fell more in love with the property and the aspect of being up here. And, and to your point, it is, you are alone, but I think it's an interesting time to be alone right now because if I have days where I miss my friends and I wish I was hanging out at a bar, let's say, I try to remind myself that, you know, it's a pandemic and none of my friends are doing that. And so if there's a way to ease that FOMO, so to speak, maybe this is the perfect time to do something like this. And I think the more time I spend up here, the more time I enjoy it. It's, I, I think that being alone can be strangely addicting and maybe even to a fault if you take it to an extreme. But uh, so far I've, enjoyed it. It's allowed me to yeah, think through a lot more things. I think be a more confident person and more clear on what's important to me and what's not. And everything else kind of just fell away, I think, after being up here. But I mean, do you ever intend to have some sort of relationship, whether it's, you know, a marriage or a partnership with another human being? And would you expect them to want to have to move up to the ghost town? Have you thought about, you know, the end game here? Are you plan- you going to stay there for the rest of your life? I mean, how, how do you... How do you sort of, you know, when you make such a significant financial investment, you say your life savings, and it's such a un- such a unique and, and uh, you know, y- you can't really, like change your mind now you know there's not a you might not be able to sell the ghost town if you wanted to so you're really kind of stuck there aren't you yeah it's it's a question i asked myself this yesterday on a walk it's like do i own the ghost town or does the ghost town own me at this point you know you've had a girlfriend in austin you tell her you're moving to a ghost town and that you're buying and how did that go over with her and i kind of get the vibe that she's not your girlfriend anymore yeah that's the, the the long story short, but I guess yeah, she's supportive. <laughs> but I, I, it's difficult to date somebody when they're living in the middle of nowhere in a town with nowhere really to leave. That's a difficult way to maintain a relationship over the course of eleven months. And you know, it worked for a bit, and then it didn't. And so now it is something I think about. You know, it's something that if I do hope to have a family one day and like uh, a relationship and all that. Um, and so I don't, I can't see this as a forever, forever, like 12 months a year for the rest of my life, but I can't see myself not being up here the majority of the year as the same token. And so it's a balancing act that I guess it has to be the right type of relationship. Um, and so for now, I, I'm here, you know, I'm thinking about the next project to get done here, hopefully getting this place to a point where more people can enjoy it. And then maybe that'll buy me a little bit of the time to to think about the the personal life a little bit more, I guess. Did you ever think about or talk to your girlfriend about her moving out there with you? Or was she just, I'm not doing that? 
No, it's, it's so it's not very comfortable up here right now, uh, especially for, you know, you know, women, it's like, there's, there's no running water. Uh, you, you have to go to the bathroom in an outhouse. You know, my shower is in the summer. It was a bag that I would heat up outside and then put underneath me or put above me in the shower. And so there's certain creature comforts that make living out here very difficult. And if you're, unless you're very committed to the task at hand and very dedicated to the project, like I am, like I, I feel that Cerro Gordo is important. I feel like the history here is important and it's, very important to me to see that through. But unless you have that conviction, you're not really going to want to be here more than a week or so, especially right now. Like I'm looking outside and the snow is just whipping sideways, you know, 30, 40 miles an hour. And there's probably four feet on the ground. And so it's just, it's not super comfortable right now. Yeah. And you grew up in Florida too. So you probably don't even know what snow is, right? I, I, I'm Canadian. I can kind of handle it a little bit, but are you kind of freaking out? What were like, were you prepared in any way for this kind of you know, I mean, were you an outdoors guy? Were you a guy that would go out into the wilderness before? Or is this all you just learning on the fly here? No, I'm, I'm learning on the fly. So I, I came in March, and in March it was still snowing. And to show you how unprepared I was, I showed up in Texas with my little truck, the two-wheel drive truck, and my truck didn't even make it all the way into town. It started snowing. It was spinning out. So I had to walk the final quarter mile in, and that kind of set the tone for my first few months here. I remember... I would try to do hikes and get lost. And the day I showed up, I was in those cloth, like all bird sandals, you know, just horribly unprepared for anything related to winter time. Um, (laughs) But but now, but now let's say 11 months removed, it's winter time again. It's almost come full circle. And I feel much more confident. You know, I have proper footwear to start off and now I'll do long hikes every day without any fear of getting lost or blizzard happening. So you take every precaution you can. But that's there, there's some things you can't really prepare for, like the mine might just collapse, or you could get lost, or um, what, yeah. What I understand what you're saying, by the way, Brent. I really do because I'll put it this way: when I go out in the van, it's not really risky, really risky, like going down in a mine shaft, going out in the van. But I am going down a very remote roads. I'm alone. Uh, I'm going to places that are very off the beaten track. I'm also sort of, it's why I'm very fascinated by what you're doing, because I'm exploring really, really remote areas. There's potential for me to get lost. There's potential for me to get injured. I'm hiking way out into the mountains. I love all of that. But once, once, once you go down in a mine shaft, there's only so much you can do to control whether or not that you're going to get lost down there. You could get injured down there. What do you do? You do anything when you go in a mine? Do you let people know I'm going in this mine today? If you don't hear from me in 48 hours, this is where I am. Or are you just kind of winging it? Uh, yeah, it's exactly that. It's usually not 48 hours. Usually, I'll say somebody that has familiarity with the property in the mines. I'll say, hey, I'm going into this mine. If I don't text you in four hours, there's a problem. Ah, um, and yeah, then better right? the other point. <laughs> you, why, yeah, I, I, you know, you're going down for four hours. So we'll say four hours, not 48 hours, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have not that it works in a mine, but when I, I, I do lose signal when I go on the backside of the property, but I have one of those, uh, in reaches, you know, those things that are GPS and you can press the SOS button. Yeah. Um, I have, I have a, uh, I have one called a, uh, spot X, um, uh, which is which is like a, a, a two way messenger satellite messenger, but but that doesn't work at the bottom of the mine, does it? 
No, it doesn't work in the mind, unfortunately. So the minds are definitely a period. And I, I try to do, what, what's fascinating to me is this. It's like every mine here, this used to be the largest silver mine in California's history. So there's a lot of books written about it. And so I'll research the exact mines. A lot of times there's maps of the mines already. And so I'll try to do quite a bit of homework before going in there, both for safety, but also it just makes the adventure seem more important and interesting if I know kind of the backstory of what it went into this mine or what went out of the mine, I should say. And so I, I, I research it. I go in. I try to set a time frame and take the precautions. Um, but, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it's not the safest activity. It's probably something that my parents would, would enjoy me not doing anymore, but uh, I can't see myself stopping. I mean, I own a mining town. I have to have some familiarity with mines, I feel. What do your parents say about this? <laughs> They're supportive. Uh, they visited once when we when I first bought it. Uh, and since then, it's funny, right? Because during the pandemic, they they visiting them is tough. They don't necessarily want me coming home. But the YouTube, for instance, is a way for them to keep in touch with the adventures. And then I keep check up with them. And they're generally supportive. How many of these mine shafts are there? Have you been down all of them? There's, there's something like 30 miles of mines underneath Cerro Gordo and probably a collection of a dozen different mines that all collectively are known as Cerro Gordo. And so I've probably been down, I don't know, 15% of them, 20% of them, maybe. So there's a, there's a lot to go. And do you have some sort of a system to make sure you don't get lost? Do you like drop breadcrumbs like Hansel and Gretel? Do you leave a, str- do you have a string behind you that you follow back? What do you do to make sure you can find your way out? Mainly it's just memory, but I have recently, I had a situation, the, the sketchiest situation I've had recently is I had, I usually bring quite a few lights, and I had the majority of the lights go out, and the last one barely get me out. But now I'll bring glow sticks, and so I'll snap a glow stick at a certain intersection if I really need to remember something, I'll just toss it there because I know it's not going to go out, and that's probably the best, the best I got for now, I guess. Sketchy is a good word. It definitely, Brent, I got to tell you, man, it sounds sketchy. I, I just I worry I worry about about you know, when I watch these videos because I know how potentially unsafe it is. So I just uh, I hope that you uh, you f- figure out a way to take uh, as much precaution as possible. Do you think you're going to keep going down these mines? Because there is a certain element of of uh, you know uh, a law of averages here. You know you can maybe go down thirty times, forty times, but if you start going down hundreds of times, you're starting tempting fate a little bit, aren't you? Yeah, I've I've, I've started easing off the mine explorations for for safety reasons, and then also I don't want the town just to be known for mines. I think there's a lot more to living up here than just exploring the mines, and so I've tried to have been leaning into you know rather than going in a mine, I'll take a long hike. Or you know, explore a different part of the property, because um, I, I do. The, the time I realize the, the danger the most is actually not when I'm in the mines. It's when I'm out of the mines editing the videos. Sometimes I'll look at it and it's like, man, come on, you know. And so, so recently I've been easing off them a bit, and so I, I, I really, I do appreciate the, the concern, and I, I hear it, and I hear, it, and so I'm, I'm trying to. Trying to back off a little bit. You know what I always find surprising when I see these abandoned mine shafts is, you know, we're living in a pretty modern society right now. But every time I leave the city and head out on one of my van trips, which is for the last six months pretty much full time, 
I always say to myself, wow, look how much empty space there is in this country. Look how much beauty, beauty and how much nature we have. And people don't realize how wild is out there. But even, even, even with all that being said, I sometimes say to myself when I see like a, an abandoned mine shaft, I say like, it's strange to me that those are just left open. Like you would think that the, the, the state would come in and blow up the entranceways at least so that people can't just go wandering around and getting lost down there. Why, why is it that they're just so open and it's so dangerous like that? Uh, yeah, it is interesting. Like on Cerro Gordo, it's because the land's been private, so they haven't done it. I know the, the BLM tries to close up some of the mine shafts, but it might just be a, a situation where there's just so many of them. And, you know, maybe some of them aren't, as well mapped and until somebody complains or talks about it, they're not taking care, but it is, you, you know, it is extraordinarily dangerous to explain the mines. I'm not trying to underplay the danger involved. And I, I do try to take quite a few precautions, but yeah, the fact that anybody could randomly wander into the desert and go into a mine shaft is not something that is necessarily the, the best situation though. Have you experienced anybody who's now, cause your YouTube channel is so popular uh, have you experienced anybody being sort of copycats or coming out to show up at Cerro Gordo unannounced or coming out and exploring the mines without telling you? And, you know, I mean, I'm assuming you must have people come and looking for you or are people just sort of so stuck on their couch that they just watch and, and don't participate? Yeah, that's the one time that I was ever a little on edge is somebody did come in the middle of the night. You know, they, they showed up. I was in my cabin about ready to sleep and I saw headlights coming into town at around 10 and it's not a place that you stumble upon. You know, it's a place that if you're coming up to Cerro Gordo, this is the only thing the road is taking you to. So you're coming up with a purpose. And by the time I got my shoes on and gotten outside, there was just a cloud of dust and their lights were gone. And that definitely doesn't help you sleep. You know, it's just what was their intention coming at that time of night? Where are they? Um, all of these questions spring into your head. And then suddenly it's very crystal clear to you that you're alone and hours from the closest police station of any type. And so that makes it a little less pleasant, but the majority of the time, as long as the sun's up, visitors are amazing. It's the nighttime visitors that are a little less, little less welcome. Have you thought about putting a gate a couple of miles down the road with a little buzzer on it or something? So you could kind of con control when people come into the, into the area in their car. The, the road's a weird one. So the road, so up on the top of the tower, department of water and power, uh, who control out of LA's water, has like a service station. So technically it's a utility road, the road that cuts through the town. There, there, there's more roads that are private roads, but I can't put a gate up because they use it as well. And so it's this weird situation where I do have a sensor, so I have a buzzer. So I, I hear maybe a quarter mile out when a car is coming up the road. So at least I have some warning, um, but it's a tricky situation. Yeah, especially because I think I love telling the story of Cerro Gordo and letting more people know about the town, but at the same time that attracts more people to come to town. And like I said, the majority of the time that's totally fine, but uh, sometimes deep in the night, you do start thinking about it a little bit more and it's a, it's a bit eerie. Yeah, I mean, I know the feeling because I'm in my van all by myself in the very remote desert all the time, but I'm mobile, so you know, even though I'm posting all these videos on YouTube, no one really ever knows exactly where I am at any given time. I, you know, my videos, you know, to be honest with you, I usually post them when I'm leaving the location. You know, I don't, sure. you know, a couple yeah. of times I've said, "Hey, I'm here," you know, and come say hi, but I, I, I don't do that very often because 
I just kind of feel a little more secure. But I, I would be pretty uh, nervous out there all by myself, for sure. I mean, uh, do you have any sort of a game plan? Do you just hide if somebody comes? What, 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 do, you, what, what do you do? I, yeah, I haven't thought the game plan through far enough. I think I I need to, especially if the town continues to you know be on more people's radars. But for now, uh, the only thing I've done close to that, and I won't reveal too much here, but like basically, I have a video showing what cabin I live in, but I don't necessarily live in that cabin anymore. I kind of uh, play a little bit of uh, hot potato with which cabin I'm staying in at, at the night, just to ease my mind if anything else. So at least they don't know exactly the the square footage that I'm sleeping in, you know, every single night. So I, I bounce around a little bit. It makes it fun, too, to sleep in the different buildings. So for now, that's my only strategy of any sort, I guess. Obviously, if somebody came up and broke into a cabin, that's illegal, right? This is not really a ghost town anymore. This is your private property. So somebody can't just sort of barge into your cabin in the middle of the night. They're going to they're gonna be charged with uh, breaking an entry, right? Right. I would hope so. It's just... I. I'm not necessarily worried about them breaking entry. That, that's more if they're even more nefarious reasons. I, I don't like to take it to an extreme, you know, but if they have some other problem with what I'm doing or something, you know, luckily that hasn't been the case in any manner, but uh, it's something I think about occasionally. Yeah, because I mean, it's interesting, like, you know, it's, that's my dog, Charlie's probably barking at a yeah. coyote or something like that. Uh I was actually, she said she likes looking out the, she's been sitting here on the floor of the van, she likes looking out the window, but Charlie, stop it. Um, do you like, um, do, do you uh, have any pets? Uh, I have a couple. So I have goats. I have uh, four goats that live on the property and they, they were additions in June. I, I, I just wanted some type of life form up here. You know, it's, as I imagine, you know, with Charlie, it's just nice having something around, you know, if it's not a human, some type of companionship. And so I have goats and then a farmer in the area called me one day and he asked me if I wanted cats. And one of his feral cats had a litter and then the mom died. So I adopted a bunch of cats here as well. So I got cats and goats. Why not a dog? I mean, dogs are such good uh, companions and their guard dogs are, you know, they they really let you know when someone's around. I mean, you know, Charlie is always uh, alert and uh, listening to my dog, Charlie. And, uh, you know, if there's ever even an animal within uh, a mile, I know it. Is, have you, is there, are you just not a dog guy? I, I, I love dogs. I, 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 I'm wondering, like, and maybe people can help me out. Like, I'm wondering what the right type of dog is, right? Because I, I, there's a lot of seasons here. There's a lot of snow right now. Uh, I'd like a dog that's pretty independent, meaning occasionally I like to go on long hikes. So either a dog that would be okay hanging out by themselves for a bit or joining me on this long hike. And I... Uh, Admittedly, just haven't done enough research. And I want to go into the decision. You know, I think that taking on a dog is a, a, you know, it's a serious thing. And so I, I just haven't thought it through yet. I, I would love to, to, but to answer the question, I would love a dog. I, I'm even thinking about in the spring getting, you know, mules and horses and stuff. But uh, wow, right now yeah. it's wintertime. So I'm just. But a dog, like a dog really is like an, uh, an alert system. You know, it really, my dog is a pot cake dog. So she's a rescue from the Bahamas. There's a, a rescue. I can tell you about them there in uh, San Diego. They're called Thrive. And they bring in these uh, street dogs from the Bahamas and from Mexico and the, all over the Caribbean. And, and uh, she is the best dog. Now, I, I'm, not exa- I'm still kind of keeping her on leash because, uh, you know, they, they could sort of bolt off on their own and, and uh, I'm training her slowly to to come off leash, but I don't want her to get lost out in the desert when I'm all alone out here. 
But, I mean, she right. is the best dog. She always lets me know whenever anything's going on. And, you know, I, I, I get nervous out here because there's mountain lions where I am. I'm going to be going yeah. up when, the, when it gets a little warmer. I'm going to be going up north further and around bear country. And, you know, sometimes you get up in the middle of the night in your van to go take a piss and you're thinking, shit, man, what's out there? You know, so so I usually right. pretty much know that there's nothing around uh, if, the, if the dog is is being chill because she's got such a such an, a, a strong sense of smell and hearing that her senses are just so much better than mine. It really, it's really been interesting because I've kind of really bonded with this little animal. I've had dogs before. I've had huskies before for 15 years. But, you know, when it's just me and the dog all alone out in the, in the wild, I really sort of become in tune with her senses. I see when she hears something. You know, I see when she smells something. She lets me know when there's something around. So I would highly recommend getting a dog and you maybe do a little research and see what kind would make the most sense for for your for your needs, but what, it, it really what is kind a nice of Charlie? Feeling. What's that? I'm curious. What kind of dog is Charlie? So Charlie's called a pot cake dog. So it's sort of a essentially okay. like a mixed a mixed breed dog. But if you Google pot cake dog, she's uh, she's a lot of fun, and, and you can you can get them from a rescue. Uh, I can give you the information where you can get one, but. Uh, but yeah, she's great, and uh, honestly, I I personally don't think I would be able to do what I'm doing without Charlie. I would just be too lonely. I spend you know half my time I spend talking to the dog. So, uh, <laughs> but um, and the other half of the time I'm you know sort of. And back, to, it's interesting what you said earlier. Uh, we were talking about you being in the mine and and feeling sort of a sense of of, of uh, mental clarity when you go down in the mine. I totally, get, totally get that. I think the phone might've cut out when, when we were talking about that, but I totally get that. Cause like, it's sort of like once I'm out in the van, I realize, okay, I've got to, I've got to make dinner. I've got to uh, figure out where I'm going to sleep tonight. I've got to listen and be aware of my safety. And there's just so many things firing in my, my brain that it does definitely, the adrenaline comes up, and I definitely uh, feel uh, it's it, it's something that like easy, gets my mind off of all the day to day problems in life that you have. You know the regular problems that you would think about. You know where there's work or business or relationships or whatever. All of that clears up, and I'm just focusing on the task at hand. As you think, there's something about that that is sort of like unique to you, maybe unique to me, that like made us decide to do something out of the box like this is do you have a mind that's always racing and you need to kind of calm it down somehow yeah i i really resonate with what you say especially about the task at hand it's like when i lived in austin i remember i would my mind would always create all these minuscule tasks that i needed to do right so i, I had to suddenly go to the grocery store to get a specific ingredient for lunch and really what i was doing was just filling my day with all of these things to do to keep me from ideas maybe I didn't want to sit with for a long time. At least this is how I saw it. And so when I came up here, I found myself doing the same thing. I would like keep busy with things that maybe I didn't need to do. It's like suddenly I had to change this doorknob on a cabin when maybe that wasn't what I had to do right then. And so at least for me, the time out here allowed me to be more comfortable with just, I guess, sitting with my own thoughts. And, uh, you know, in, in the city, that's something I didn't do before. But out here, I don't really, you know, there's not too much else to do. And so it does, it's clarifying at least, and it's, it's nice, and I, I enjoy it. And I, and I like the, like, I like the small struggles in each task, if that makes sense. So, like, it's nothing is, 
And taking a shower out here isn't easy, and some days it's annoying, but some days it's like, it makes me appreciate everything a little bit more, meaning if I was in Austin, I turned on my shower and the shower had worked fine, I would never think twice about water, but here, because water is such a scarce resource, like, I think about water a lot, and like, I never did before, and so if there's some, you know, romantic notion to it, it does allow me to appreciate a lot more just about my everyday life, I guess. So is there not a well? Are you able to dig a well? It's too hot. So I've been told there's a lot of rumors in the high desert about water, you know, uh, but uh, I've been told there is no option to dig a well because they're too high up in the mountains. Uh, and the town used to have springs that fed it. When it was a boom town, there was 4,000 residents here, and they had springs that fed the town. And the springs were fed by Owens Lake, this massive lake below the town in Owens Valley. And Owens Lake was eventually drained as part of the L.A. Aqueduct program that, like, the movie Chinatown's about, you know, if you've ever seen that. And they drained the lake to give water to L.A., and that dried up the springs. And so Cerro Gordo was kind of left, you know, like, quite literally high and dry. And so the only source of water currently is the main union mine here is the biggest mine in town. And it had a 900-foot vertical shaft straight down. And sometime around the 20s, 1920s, they discovered that water was seeping out of the mountain and into the 700 level. So they created a sump, so like a massive, let's say, pool down there. And they would pump the water from the sump to the mine shaft and then 700 feet straight up and then down into town. Um, But the pump went out about 15 years ago and nobody wanted to go down and fix it just because of the danger and liability involved in doing so. And I was told it was impossible to fix and I believed that for, let's say, a year and a half. And then I started talking to some locals that knew a little bit about mines. And we kind of formed the the dream team of sorts, I guess. And over the course of a bunch of weekends, we went down into the 700 level. We replaced the pump. We replaced 700 feet of piping back up the mine. And so I do get a little bit of water out of the mine every day, probably 100 to 200 gallons. And I don't drink it just because it's it's weird to drink water out of an old silver mine uh, in some ways. And so I use it for like cleaning and stuff. But uh, beyond that, I, I truck up all the water. Right. Um, so you ever find any silver? Yes. Yeah, there was a boom down for about 10 years and then they lost the silver vein. I guess, you know, the ore accumulates in a vein and they mined it pretty good. They lost the silver and then right around the same time, the springs dried up. So they lost the water. So, a town with no water and no minerals worth mining, you know, everybody kind of packed it up and left. Um, and so to my knowledge, there's not enough silver here to make it commercially viable to make it a mine anymore. But who knows, you know, like there's always rumors, right? I, the, the former caretaker who used to live here, he, he's still convinced that there's another $500 million of the silver here. How he knows that or thinks that, I don't know, but he spends his free days, walking in the property, looking for telltale signs. It's, I guess after a rain, there's certain washes that potentially show where ore might be. And he spends, or he used to spend hours looking looking for the lost silver vein, I guess. Well, it seems unlikely that there would be all the silver right in one spot. And, you know, 100 yards to the right, there's none, none, right? Why isn't there more? I would think that you probably will find some, right? Yeah, I think so. It's like, you know, they would take ore samples to drill in a, uh, you know, like a circular fashion and pull out a core sample, but they could be an inch away from the silver vein. And if they didn't actually touch it, then the ore sample wouldn't show it. So, yeah, I mean, you figure there is so much ore pulled out here that there must be more. Uh, it's not my primary focus, uh, but 
it's a fun thing to think about, right? You know, finding this lost silver vein and becoming a booming town again and all that. How much is the the YouTube channel a part of the equation here? I mean, is this this is the is this the main priority right now? Like, is that the, is that a big revenue stream for you to kind of create this television experience for people? It was it's weird. It was, so it was never a plan. Like, I never grew up. I never made videos. I never made took photos. And when I came to Saragoto in March, I, I borrowed a friend's camera because I really wanted to learn how to take long exposure shots of stars. I really like astrophotography or whatever of photos of stars and up here the stars are beautiful so i borrowed his camera um some friends were curious about life up here so i made a little video put it on youtube you know nobody really watched it maybe my family and then made a couple more and they started to get some traction and then i started really liking the process you know the i bought more cameras i bought a drone uh, i'd never done any of this stuff so like i really started enjoying the process of it and now yeah i, I love it you know it's it's, it's allowed me to connect with just amazing people like i mean we're having a conversation right now which is to me just amazing and fun and awesome and something i could have never imagined you know in march before i made any videos and uh so yeah i like it. it's not the priority the priority is still the building and i the the property renovation i have to remind myself that sometimes you know when i'm out there doing hours of framing to get the perfect shot i have to remind myself hey the you know the the real point here is to to rebuild this town but it's 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 a creative outlet I never had before, and I'm really, I'm really enjoying it more but than anything else. You're getting millions of views, right? It's really a big hit. Yeah, it's it's starting to get really popular, and it's 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 fun because then, like, as far as social interaction, you said earlier, like, it's nice just to talk to somebody on the phone. For me, I, I I'm in the like premiere chat when a video goes live, so I just get to talk to people for a few hours from all over the world. And to me, each week, it's like my scheduled interaction and i i've really grown to look forward to it and uh yeah it's awesome how, how lucky are you to have that cell service up there are you able to upload the videos from sarah gordo yeah it takes days you know so i'm just always uploading the background whether it's while i'm sleeping or while i'm out exploring something's always uploading um but it's fun you know i make do with what i have so do you welcome visitors? Do you encourage people to come visit you? Is that, the, is that part of the plan? Do you want people to come visit Cerro Gordo? Or are you going to turn this into a tourist attraction someday? It, in time, I'd love for people to come and visit. I, I think right now it's, it's strange just because of the pandemic, you know? And so I've been isolated from that in a sense because I'm in the north. So to bring it to my front door isn't something that I'm anxious to do right now. But hopefully, yeah, and maybe the spring, summer, as things ease, I'd, I'd love to show people around. I mean, that's my, my hope is that more people, yeah. Yeah, no, sorry, your hope is that more people will come after the pandemic or? or... Yeah, that they can come and enjoy. I think it's beautiful here. I think the history is important. I just want more people to be able to enjoy that, both, let's say, for a day tour or maybe even spend the night, you know, so they could see the mountain on every angle of the sun you know it's one thing to be here for a couple hours it's another thing to see the sunrise and the moonrise you know it seems like it would be a pretty easy transition to convert one of those buildings into a a, a room and since you've run a hostel before you turn it into a little bed and breakfast and you charge uh, you know a few bucks a night and that could maybe help you kind of subsidize the place you make it a little hotel yeah that's my hope I, i'd love to do that i'd love to like I love hosting people, especially up here. I'd love to show them around, teach them what I've learned about the town and all that, and just allow more people to do it. So, yeah, that's in the plans. It's, it's, I'm working towards that, whether our, it's 
clear or not, I'm always trying to renovate these buildings to the point where, yeah, hopefully people can come and, and stay in the, you know, in the original house that the founder of the town stayed in. I think there's something neat to that. There's a lot of, of sort of dark history there. I've, I've, I've seen some mention of, of murders that would happen on a regular basis. Can you speak a little bit about that? You know, the Wild West history of the town? Yeah, it's so the town's pretty isolated. And back in the day, police wouldn't come up here. The town didn't have a sheriff. The town didn't have a jail, even though it had 4,000 residents. So, you know, the, the way to solve your issues was, you know, gunfights. And there's reports that at its peak, Saragoto had something like a murder a week here. And there's another story of a, they tried to get a town doctor to finally come up. And they got a doctor to come up. And his first night here, he had to go see a patient. And to get to his patient, he had to climb over six-foot sandbags because a lot of the miners would line their bunk beds with sandbags to stop all the stray bullets that were going through the town throughout the night. And I just think it's incredible to sit here now and look at what appears to be a fairly peaceful place, but imagine it just, you know, cracking with gunfights all hours of the day must have been something else. So what is that about the history of, of the West, that there was so much wild gunfighting? And I mean, were people just just kind of, it was just kind of an un, uncontrolled area, and there was mining and money and silver, and you'd have outlaws that would just come in and, and rob people. Is that what happened, or why, why was there so much murder? Yeah, I think the town bred a lot of things. It bred greed. You know, a lot of times people were getting into mining, not necessarily out of anything but monetary reasons, and there was a lot of scamming going on. And you know, a lot of these guys would just go from camp to camp. There's even stories of Butch Cassidy hiding out here at Cerro Gordo for a bit, which, you know, he's an infamous bandit, which I think is just super interesting in its own way. But I'm not trying to romanticize and say these people were good people necessarily, you know, like there was, yeah, like you said, a dark past here. And it's something that I'm confronted with every day. You know, there's a, there's a cemetery here that has something like 200 miners in it. Do you have, do you have any documentation of how many murders happened in the town? Who was murdered? Uh, was there investigations? What happened when there was a murder in the Wild West? Did just people just kind of bury the body and move on? Yeah, there are sporadic newspaper articles that I found about trials around Cerro Gordo shootings. But at the same time, there's a little bit of discrepancy because I've maybe found five of those articles, but there's a graveyard here with, let's say, two or 300 miners in it. Something something doesn't quite add up there, right? And so there's some, I imagine, incidents that happened, whether they were accidents or whether they were straight murders that went undocumented about. And then a more tragic reality of mining towns is like, so for instance, the mining collapse that happened under the 200 level of our mine, uh, it was primarily Chinese miners that, that were trapped. And when the newspaper reported it, it was reported between between 20 and 30 miners, which is tragic in its own. You know, that summarizes a lot of, you know, America at that time. And so there was a reporting issues. There was everything, but I don't know. It's a, it's a very weird, weird situation around here. Do you have a lot of, uh, any photographs and things from, from back in the day that you're able to maybe make a little museum or something like that that shows the history? Yeah, that's probably my favorite building on the property is there's an old general store right in the middle of the town that was built in 1878. And I've, I've turned that into my little museum. So anything I find in the mines, I throw back in the museum so more people can see it. And I, I've, I have a, quite a few hit photographs because one of the owners, um, one of the later owners, he almost had a 
personal photographer, it seems. So there's quite a collection of his time here that shows the property and the mines in the different eras, which I love because to me, as I restore these buildings, my ideal is to restore them, at least from the outside, to look as close as they did from the period they were constructed. And so it really helps me piece back together the town as I'm looking through these, these photo albums. I saw you had a fire there and one of the one of the buildings burned. Was was that a tragedy for you there? Yeah, yeah. It was uh among, if not the most difficult nights of my life probably, and most difficult situations. It was my favorite building here on the property was an old saloon and it was a building that was built in eighteen seventy one. And these buildings, when they built them, mining towns were supposed to last, let's say, five to eight years. And so they were constructed great. They were typically insulated with newspaper, and it's the desert. And so we're talking about very dry and brittle buildings insulated with a 150-year-old newspaper. And one along the way, people had tinkered with electrical. And so for me, I, I woke up in a room around 3 o'clock in the morning one night to what I thought was gunshots. I thought somebody had come to town and was shooting a gun. And at the time, I had a friend staying here, and our caretaker was up for a week to help us with a project. And I woke up, I looked out my window, and I saw a red hue on the mountainside, which I thought was some kids who come to town and shut off flares, because my mind still couldn't jump to the reality that a building could be burning down. And as I exited the building, I saw the hotel floor to ceiling, fully engulfed, um, and it was tough, you know, it's, it were because it's a mountain town, you call 911, but they're not going to come for a number of hours because we don't have running water. It's difficult to try to contain, you know, a, a blaze that's already 30 feet in the air. And so it was a, it was kind of like a slow motion nightmare for me. I saw my, my hopes, my dreams, my work, my life savings, a lot of things quite literally go up in flames in front of you. And so I remember it was a pretty difficult time to be up here. And I think, it was a test, you know, for me, it's the old owner came up and he saw me the day of, and I remember he looked at me and I was very, I was very distraught. I was, you know, I was like crying and I was like having a bad time. And I remember he kind of put his hand on my shoulder. And he's like, you know what, Brent, uh, for better or worse, this is part of Sarah's history now. And, you know, it's kind of up to you what happens from here. And he was very comforting in that way. And after I kind of licked my wounds for a couple of days, that's really what, drives me day to day um, is to see that building come back to life. And so my main project above all other projects right now, above my exploration or anything is just trying to rebuild that. And I've gotten a lot of help. Uh, we have architects that are helping me out and different things and the plans are approved and I, I am rebuilding it and it will look as similar as it can from the outside to the old hotel. You know, obviously you will never replace the history that was in that hotel. There was a card room in the hotel that, had a bullet hole in the wall and a blood stain underneath it still. And there was, that's where Butch Cassidy supposedly hit out. And there's just a lot of things that we'll never replace, but you know, what are my other options after it happens? It's either I can go back to Austin with my tail between my legs, or I can kind of double down and rebuild. And my hope is that, you know, two, three, 400 years from now, Saragor is still here. People are still coming here. They're still learning from the place. And at that point in time, Yes, the other buildings will be, let's say, 500 years old, but the hotel will still be a really old building. And so I hope that people can still come and enjoy the space and the history up here. You know, and you know, everything does, I believe, happen for a reason. I don't know why I believe that, but I do. And it's possible that, you know, it could be 
some sort of blessing in disguise in the sense that you will, if you do rebuild the hotel and replicate it, it will, of course, have modern construction. It'll be safer, and it could end up being yep. sort of a place for people to actually stay safely when they come up and visit the town. And uh, you do have that story, so you, you can probably put another bullet hole in the wall pretty easily. A hundred percent. No, you're exactly right. So if you're looking for silver linings, then uh, well, silver linings and silver. Anyways, if you, there, there was nobody in the building, um, which was very. There could have been um, nobody was hurt. And like you said, the new hotel will have sprinkler systems. It'll have to be to modern codes. And so there'll be six rooms. And those will be, the, I think, the first six rooms that I'd be comfortable having people coming up and staying. And I think, you know, it really brought to my forefront safety generally, meaning like I've since replaced the wiring in every single building here just because sometimes it takes something like to happen. And the other, let's say, blessing in disguise is the fact that sometimes I guess it takes tragedy to bring certain people together and i think the local community when we bought the place we were the outsiders right they were, they were kind of looking at me you're trying to figure me out i was flying and i was flying out and then i started living here and this happened and they were all waiting you know to see what my response would be and when they saw me out there in a backhoe clearing the site you know 12 13 hours a day and like showing that i wasn't going anywhere i suddenly saw a lot of local support you know the locals suddenly that were sitting back on the sidelines started coming forward and offering their assistance how they could, whether that was their skills, their expertise, their equipment, you know, anything that they could. And it really feels nice to kind of be accepted by the local community because it's, it's an important part of this community's past. And a lot of people here have stories from their generations of family about Cerro Gordo. And so one of the other biggest things for me is because of the fire, I've become a lot closer to, local community, which, which I don't know, it, it makes me feel good, if anything else. Yeah, and it just, was it an electrical fire? It just started because of, what happened? Yeah. How, how did they, the fire start? Yeah, they, so once a, so up here it's hard to get any supplies, and so people seem to tinker. And so over the last hundred years, you had a hundred people tinkering with the electrical that shouldn't have been tinkering with the electrical. And the interesting thing to me is they sent fire investigators up, and after that, it appears that the fire actually happened in the building next to the hotel in a small cabin, which they had reduced wire. I don't know too much about electrical, but they had reduced wire to the point where it was essentially just raw wire running through the walls, touching old newspaper. Yeah. So it was almost, it, it was described to me by the fire department as a ticking time bomb. And so going back to the other point, it is very fortunate that nobody was hurt. And if this was, if this was inevitable, like, at least nobody was, you know, nobody was injured, which is which is an important thing. Have you gone through the rest of the structures now and looked for similar kind of wiring problems and tried to clean that up? It just seems like it must be a really great expense to try to rebuild an entire town as an individual. How do you how do you manage all of that? Yeah, it's especially when you get a curveball like one of the buildings, you know, burning to the ground. I, I, I have gone through all the buildings and rewired the majority of them, and I think. Going back to the point where the local is supporting, the wiring was donated, and then an electrician in the area donated his time to do that. And people have been very generous in that regard. Um, but the expenses are so huge here. You know, it, it takes a lot to get anything done here. And uh, if it's not, if you don't have a lot of money, it takes a lot of time because I'm trying to do a lot of it myself. Um, and so, 
Yeah, it's just, I just try to take it day to day, I guess. I noticed that, or I thought I saw online that one of your videos that really popped was a TikTok video because you found a pair of <laughs> antique blue jeans at the bottom of, the, of, 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 of a mine. Is that true? Yeah, so TikTok's an interesting thing. I, I, I was not on TikTok before coming to Cerro Gordo, and then some kids came to visit, not kids, some, some let's say 21-year-olds came to visit, and they were like, why aren't you on TikTok? I was like, I don't want to dance, you know, and that was my response, and they were like, no, you already go in these mines to show what you find in the mines. So I started doing them. And the one that really took off is a, it was related to denim. So de- denim has a really interesting history. So denim, blue jeans specifically, were created by Levi Strauss for California silver miners in 1873. And as far as denim collectors go, they just go wild for original Levi's because there's not a lot of them out there. And Levi's had a bunch of them in a warehouse that they caught on fire, so they lost a lot of their archives. There's always this hunt for original Levi jeans. And all the miners here at Cerro Gordo wore original Levi's because this was a period that that mine was active. And so after I learned this fact, it's become, you know, not, I'm not going to say an obsession, but a continuing storyline for me trying to find these Levi's back in a mine. And so, yeah, I, 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 hurt, I hunt for them. I, I kind of update my, my quest on, on TikTok these days quite a bit. And people seem to enjoy I don't know, the, the the adventure of trying to find these things. Yeah, I saw one video when you went for a hike and you found sort of an old tin, like a, a cool little... It's the one where you slept out in the desert under some boards uh, to protect yourself from the mountain oh, line. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that was fun. You've, what, what's the... like? Do you, have you found lots of other cool old things that... Uh, what are some of the things that you've found that are the most striking? Probably, I thought I have two favorite finds. Like, I go back in the mines quite a bit and you find different things. But one day I found a jacket that was a waterproof jacket that was in relatively good shape and it still had the brand on it. So I reached out to the brand and they were able to supply me with the pamphlet that the jacket was actually sold in. So it turns out it was a 103 year old jacket and it was in amazing shape still. Like it was still, I can even wear it and stuff. And that was cool. And then I think my favorite find wasn't necessarily in the mines. I, I was cleaning up the original general store here and wrapped in a blanket behind one of the counters was this briefcase. And I, I opened up the briefcase and there was just every part of this miner's life. There was love letters and there was a divorce settlement. There was mining claims and there was bankruptcy and there was just uncashed checks from, you know, 1910. And there was just love letters and all these things that like an encapsulation of an entire human being's life left down to a briefcase. And it was just really fascinating to, search through that, you know, try to understand this person and just get a glimpse into what life was like, you know, 120 years ago here. Wow. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's become sort of a, a trend, I would almost say, on internet on the internet now on YouTube where there's people exploring abandoned places and, and, and uh, you know, going into... You know, there's other people that are doing not not ghost towns, but like exploring abandoned buildings. What do you attribute? What do you attribute the fascination with that kind of thing to? Yeah, like abandoned things are like hauntingly beautiful in their own way. I think like people love like yeah, I, I know there's people going to old warehouses and stuff, and everything's there. And I think part of it is the way I just mentioned on the briefcase is like for me, it's imagining what it was like when it wasn't abandoned. And so you can imagine the people there, what was happening there. 
Um, part of it too is like when you see nature reclaiming certain buildings, I think that's really beautiful in its way. You know, when you see the vines coming through the windows of the old warehouse that are coming down to the floor, um, that's really interesting to me. Um, and I don't know. I just think right now, I imagine as, as you're experiencing, as I'm experiencing, if, if there's something freeing about being out in the open space uh, away from cities, I imagine if you're sitting in an apartment in New York City on the 28th floor and it's a pandemic and you can't leave your apartment, the thought of being out in nature and being in these abandoned places far from anybody else, there's probably a certain allure. So I imagine if any period these types of things are popular, I, I could see an argument that right now is kind of uh, a good time to be out in nature or out around abandoned stuff. Yeah, I've been I've been going to some uh, Native American ruins that are out in New Mexico and Arizona and, you know, some of them thousands of years old. I went to a place called Chaco Canyon, Chaco culture in, in northern New Mexico on the Navajo Nation uh, Reserve. And I, uh, you know, you stand there in these, you know, this was essentially a ghost town as well, but this was, a, you know, built in the year 800 or something like that. And uh, by the Pueblo people. And for me, just standing there, and also I felt the same, similar kind of feelings when I was in that that sort of, uh, you know, ghost town in Texas, you know, where you just mm-hmm. kind of sort of feel a sense of, uh, uh, I feel a sort of a sense of uh, sadness, really, for, you know, just the time that has passed, but also sort of a sense of an amazement, you know, really, like you, you realize that, you know, you know, there's a sort of an insignificance that we have in our lives. You know, we're here for a certain amount of time. It's so such a blip on the radar compared to, you know, history. And when you're actually able to sort of touch it and see it and feel it and understand that someone lived here hundreds of years ago and and now they're gone and we're here. And it really is kind of a kind of a moving experience going out into these places. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it for me when. Let's say I found this briefcase, right? And it was a miner's whole life. It reminded me that, you know, not to be morbid, at the end of my life, I could be just a briefcase. And what do I choose to leave in that briefcase? And so it's kind of a reminder that, to your point, like time marches on, right? And I'm not, I'm not an idiot. There's, there was owners at Cerro Gordo before I was here. There's owners after I'm going to be gone. So I just try to be the best chaperone during the period that I'm here and hopefully do the property right and it's a constant reminder. That's, that's an amazing point. Like anytime I'm here, the graveyard's a reminder of that abandoned places. I, none of this is as old as those Pueblo ruins, but I can only imagine how standing there connects, not just, you know, Cerro Gordo is one or two generations removed. That's what, 10, 20, I don't even can't even do the math, you know, many generations removed. Um, and there is something both humbling and like connecting in that to me, it's like a connection to history that that's, that's beautiful in a way. Have you ever thought maybe for your own personal amusement to take all of the details of your life and squeeze them into the exact same briefcase with all of the other guy's life and then just leave that I there love that. to really confuse people no. when they find it in a hundred years? Like, wait, who's, who's this other guy? No, I haven't, but <laughs> I think you just prompted an amazing idea that I'm definitely going to do. Or you should and, at, uh, least, at least get a briefcase with your life, you know, right. and put all your stuff in it and then just bury it or leave it down in a mine somewhere, you know? I like the mine. Yeah, I've tried to leave. So, like, I've, I think about this occasionally. So, like, I, I do like leaving little Easter eggs around the property. So, like, underneath the new hotel, 
I put a pretty big time capsule and I put like Polaroids in it just because like I know the excitement that I find finding these things. So I hope to like in the future they find them. And also like even something like what you just mentioned, like creating a time capsule is an interesting thought process, right? So I was creating this time capsule to go under a hotel that wasn't even built yet. But the time that they'd find that would mean the hotel would no longer exist. So it's a very weird mm-hmm. mental exercise to go through to like think about those types of things. Um, but I, I like that. I, I'm definitely getting a briefcase and uh, <laughs> throwing a bunch of stuff in there before this, this, this year's up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, we've had a good long talk here, Brent, and I, you know, uh, I appreciate it. And, uh, I want to come visit you. I'm going to, I was thinking I would probably wait a little bit, uh, till this pandemic ends, but that's hopefully going to be in a month or so. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so, uh, you know, I plan on uh, definitely staying in touch if, if you, if I'll shoot you a text every now and then and check in on how you're doing. And, uh, as soon as, uh, as soon as things kind of, you know, maybe return to some sort of sense of normal. I'd like to come out and visit you if that's okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have you. You know, from the time we connected, I think you'd you'd really dig it out here. I think, and I I love showing people around. So I'd love to show you the history here. And I know you're not a huge fan of mine, so maybe at least peek in the entrance of a mine or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll definitely stick my head in the entrance, but I don't know if I'm going to go down uh, quite as, as far down. I saw you had somebody came out uh, and, and explored a mine with you. Was that another uh, sort of uh, ex- mine explorer? There was another sort of young guy that came out, and you guys went down a mine together. Who was that? Yeah, he, here's my buddy. So, like, he, he's a friend of mine, and he there's certain situations that, as I got into stuff like rappelling down the mines, you know, with ropes, this is something you just you just cannot do by yourself. It's just far too dangerous. And so he came out to to spot me and help me go through them, and that was exciting. And I, I try to bring him out. Most of the time that I go in the mines now, I try to see if he can come out for a weekend. Just to your point earlier, it's why, why take all these unnecessary risks, you know? And so I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit better about that. He's, he's done a big help. Yeah. Do you do anything to discourage people from copying you? Because I would think that that probably would be something that I'd be worried about is someone seeing you do it on YouTube and then coming out and just sort of without any preparation. Yeah. Know, spelunking their way here, down into your mind, you know, the the mines here, like if, if I, a lot of them are covered and they're like barbed wired up. And so I'll remove them and put that back before I'm making any type of video. And the, the main mine I'm going into is the union mine. And the only mine, the only way to get into that, is to operate this hoist system. So imagine a elevator that goes 900 feet down in the ground. Yeah. And if you don't move the elevator, you don't go into the mine. So all of that is blocked off and there's no real way to, to yeah, get into that. I one. saw that on your vice uh, video, which was really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That thing is, it's something else. It's, it's a piece of machinery from 1865 that still operates and it's mind blowing. And it takes, 45 minutes to go down 700 so this this is like this this is like the the first question i would ask is what happens when you go down to the bottom and then the hoist breaks yeah that's when you're in a really so that so when i operate the hoist it takes a little bit of team somebody has to like so hoist is imagine like a a cage with a cable that's going up and then there's a guy back there and there's a big spool of cable and he's pulling the gravity brake back so that the cable doesn't go down too fast and so he's letting you down and the scariest part for me is about 550 feet down, the earth has moved a little bit and the cage gets a little stuck. So it starts chattering and shaking back and forth. And then finally gravity gives way and it free falls for about a foot while you get unstuck. Yeah. And it's, it's not fun. Um, but if you were to go down there and get stuck, 
rope. You know, usually I have a, I have like uh, ascenders with me, like uh, things to climb back up rope. So they could theoretically throw down rope far enough for me to find my way back up. Um, but that would not be an enjoyable 900 foot ascent. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Brent, be careful, man. I, 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 I definitely, you know, just, uh, you know, I, I love watching what you do, but uh, try to try not to take too many unnecessary risks. I, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you'll uh, be careful, but be safe. All right. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I, I, I'm taking my time, and I, I can't wait to to see you out here. It's going to be a lot of fun. Big thank you to Brent Underwood. Uh, you can check him out on YouTube at Ghost Town Living. Everybody, check that out. Subscribe to his channel, uh, and subscribe to my channel, uh, YouTube.com/slash Tom Green. Uh, is my channel and uh, everybody uh, follow me on Instagram follow Brent on Instagram go like his stuff watch what he's doing it's so cool I want you to see his videos and the things that he uh, has been doing and then listen to this podcast again and it'll all make that much more sense if you haven't already seen his stuff because it's it's really amazing and I do want to thank all of you for subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends uh, this podcast is the engine that is uh Uh, you know, really kind of boosting a lot of power into this van life adventure that I'm on here. And I want to thank Audio Up for getting getting behind what I'm doing and uh, showing some love and showing some support. So uh, go check out all of their shows as well. And uh, they do a lot of great podcasts too. Go check them out. And and, uh, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you guys next time. This is Tom Green from Van Life, and uh, I'm off on the road again. I I honestly do not know where I'm sleeping tonight, Uh, possibly the Kofa Wilderness area, but that's pretty close close by to where I am, so I think I might kind of put on some miles today. And uh, again, I'm shooting video all the time, posting it on my YouTube channel, and I want you to go check it out and see what I am doing. Uh, You can hear what I'm doing here, but you'll be able to see what I'm doing over there. And uh, hopefully that will put this podcast in even more perspective for you. Love you guys. See you next week. Bye. Hey, how'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.